The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest business headlines, inspirational success stories, and brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. We're also joined this morning by special guest Heather Matthews, managing director of Little's Chauffeur Drive. The show aims to inform and entertain, but the most important objective for our business titans, Tom and Willie, is to provide support for local business. So if you want advice or have a business question for our dynamic duo, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, cracking show last week to kickstart our second series. Lots of talking points. And once again, we have a few contentious issues to discuss. National insurance. A rise is on the way. It's dominating the headlines. Obviously huge in terms of revenue raising. We've seen in the past is probably less visible and less contentious than a rise in income tax. Is that a sensible way of raising much-needed cash for the NHS and social care, Willie? I'll tell you an interesting story about rises in uh, NI. I remember years ago um, when Gordon Brown was Chancellor, I was actually asked to come to a post-budget um, lunch with the Herald. And you had a panel, you had about 300 people in the room. And they thought it'd be a good idea to invite, obviously, someone part of the Labour Party, and they very kindly invited me to come along. And from nowhere, Gordon in, uh, increased NI by one, one P. No one knew it was coming. There was no leak, whatever. So I'm there, supposed to, you know, be shoring up the Labour Party, and Gordon's just made a change to the tax system that's just cost me 700 grand. <laughs> so you can imagine when, you the, can when, it, when the chairman came to me and asked me, what do you think? There was a, there was a silent pause, and I thought... I'm going to have to work out. I've got a calculator here. But my problem with increases in NI is this. You have to pay national insurance contributions whether you're making money or not. And I would prefer rises in corporation tax where you can tax because you've made money. And I think that, you know, the, the, I understand totally they need more money for the National Health Service but I think that there's there's a better way in doing that. As you say, poor people who can't afford an increase in NI will be paying their bit as well. And I just think that this would have been better as, as, as something in corporation or on on uh, income tax. Tom? Yep, I um, totally agree. Um, putting up NI is a bad policy. It's anti-enterprise. It's anti-jobs. So we all agree... There's no disagreement around this table about the need to take care of people in their later years. But, and here's the but, um, everybody thinks the government's got money. The government doesn't have any money. The government taxes us, the taxpayer, and decides how to spend it. So therefore, this, if in your social care, if you can afford it, you shouldn't be a burden on the NHS or anybody else. So I'm up for saying, right, there should be an insurance bond. There should be something that if you can afford it, you pay into it right from early 
and it pays out to take care of you in your later years. If you can't afford it, then that's where um, a civil society steps in to take care of you. But NI is wrong because it's a tax on the lower paid, as Willie said, which is not fair and equitable. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying I should be paying a bigger share of this. Absolutely. And it's a tax on the employer. So in this day and age, that's not what we want. Surely, surely the brains round the table of government can come up with something better. Well, there's the other side to it. Does it dampen the consumer part of the economy by taking money out of people's pockets? Absolutely. Will be damaging? Ab- ab- absolutely. This, this, we, we need to get our economy back on and even, even keel. And what has been happening in Britain is because not so many people have been going abroad, they've been doing staycations. I know you're off on a brilliant staycation up up north next (laughs) next week, um, Donald. So um, spending money in Britain has really helped the economy. Now, there there is the knock-on effect of other other people there to serve them (laughs) once you get there. But yeah, anything that dampens down that, in my opinion, is wrong. So I don't think it's it's thought out. And I, I really think Rishi Sunak is a clever, clever guy. Um, he used to work for a friend of mine who's one of the best hedge fund managers in the top three in the world who doesn't suffer fools gladly and he speaks highly of Sunak and surely we can come up with something better. I think there's a more serious point here that we really have to you know, discuss and it's a huge part of your manifesto to get people to vote for you and you sweep into power with a majority that you couldn't believe then how can you go back on that pledge? It was a huge part of Boris Johnson's pledge that he would not... Re- you can see it just now where his cabinet are falling out of him. You know, Rhys Mogg is having but a Could anybody a have foreseen a pandemic and the impact that that would have ravaging the NHS? So I, I disagree with you, Willie, in this one. I think as the facts change, you change your mind. And, um, I mean, let's face it, when, when did ever any politician keep their word... Come on. But this, this, this will be a drop in the ocean for the money that's been spent during the pandemic. And again, my point is, it's the poor that will suffer the most. Right? They're going to be contributing more to this than ever. So this is just a... For me, the government... and Going back to the apprenticeship levy, there's not been a lot of thought put into these increases in taxes, and they're just taxes... Uh, I think if he'd have thought it out, I think people, Tom's just said it, we could have lived with an increase in corporation tax. We could have increased, yeah. uh, we could have lived with an increase in income tax for the higher it's paid. The tax and profits. Totally. Right? And I guarantee you just now, this one policy, I seen a lady on TV the other night saying that I, I lent my vote to the Tories this year, I will not be lending it to them again. This was this is a broken promise. So if they were having a vote tomorrow in some of the red wall areas that they said that they'd managed to win, I'll guarantee you the voting would be different. Well, I, I want to take it away from politics because I'm not involved in politics, obviously. You are, Willie. But I did, <laughs> I did read that Tesco agree with you on the apprenticeship levy so surely we can campaign because you know when you explained it to me Willie about this apprenticeship there's never been a more important time 
for apprenticeships in this country, and by this country I mean the UK, and the apprenticeship scheme, as it's said, is not fit for purpose. You've said it in this show, and Tesco now agree with you. I think every trade body, most big companies, everyone on block, I have not met one either a trade body, the CBI, the Chamber of Commerce, big business, anyone who thinks that the apprenticeship levy was a good idea. And for the amount of money that they receive from it, it I mean, it's done nothing but put the whole apprenticeship movement back. And, and Willie, can the Scottish government do their own thing? Well, they, I don't believe there's devolved powers in relation to raising the funds through the levy, but what the Scottish government could do, and what the Scottish government are trying to do every turn is, to try and demonstrate that it could be cleverer than, than England, right? Which is which is great, uh, you know, if, if they're right. So what the Scottish government could do is, and I know that John Swinney is leading up, you know, the COVID recovery. This is a fantastic, you know, uh, example of how you can use this crisis to turn it round to an advantage. Treat it as an uh, opportunity. Yeah, but, but but the problem we've got is is that that people talk about modern apprenticeships. You know, and, and there's apprenticeship for everything now, right? Which is great that, that you know, kids are getting accreditation for anything they're doing, but we really have to look at the technical apprenticeships, right? I don't know anyone now that's an apprentice bricklayer or an apprentice uh, plumber or joiner, right? So back in the day, all your friends, everybody you knew was in those trades, and I really think that we should have a big, big push. And, and again, all around the green agenda. You know, where's the... I've been harping on about it for about five years. Where's the young green champions? You know, where's the where's the FM manager of a building that's over a hundred thousand square foot that's helping us with the environment? So you're saying apprenticeships are the way forward, but the CBI is predicted that we'll have two years of labour shortages. Mm. How do we tackle it in the short term? Well, training programs. Obviously, you've seen a lot of stuff this week. You know, last week, this week about the HGV drivers and how we're going to try and address that. But it's funny. I seen a list yesterday of the vacancies, and I think there's 1.5 million vacancies in the UK at the moment. And I don't know if that's a record or not. But there is over a hundred thousand HGV drivers short. There is 79,000 nurses short. There is 50,000 care workers and home carers. Primary and nursery education, teaching professionals, there's 30,000 short. Chefs, there's 31,000 short. Sales and retail, 27,000. Cleaners and domestics, 24,000. And here's one, metal working production and maintenance fitters, 20,000. Joiners and carpenters, 7,000. There's things that we can do to to, to fix this. Get so people into training. Sorry. I, I think we we discussed it last week, Willie, you know, that Brexit's kind of sneaked under the radar because of COVID still dominates all the headlines. 364,000 EU nationals left employment in Britain and they're not coming back. So, threat or opportunity definite opportunity but we've got to get our act together here and um, if I look at one of the companies we're invested in the Hutt Group based in Manchester so through the pandemic they've taken on about 3,000 maybe more people average age 26 and what Matt Moulding the founder of that business tells me is he wants to get his employees raw he doesn't actually want them to have worked anywhere else. He doesn't, he, because he wants to mould them, if you forgive the pun, into the way 
the hut go about their business. But the sad fact, when, when I visited down to the office, um, his number two, Johnny, he had said, Tom, it's great and we're recruiting all these people. I have not met face-to-face 80% of my team. And that's a creative business. And that's a problem. You know, I I really think there's a huge opportunity here. So we talked about it last week, the training colleges. Let's grow our own. But um, So you're asking what we can do, Don. We, we, we can do a lot. And employers just need to get on with it. You know, it, it kind of annoys me how everybody seems to, oh, well, the government's got to do this, government's going to do that. To hell with the government. As entrepreneurs, we've got to get on with it in spite of the government and just solve it. So um, I know um, my pals down in Ayrshire at Buzzworks, they're coming up with a training programme for chefs, bringing chefs into the industry, making, giving chefs a four-day week, making the hours more um, palatable. Again, forgive the pun. Um, got all the puns going, they're small and willy. So they're looking at it, threat or opportunity. So you could moan all day, oh, bloody hell, can I get the chefs? They're saying, right, we'll do a training, we'll make it a good career, we'll make it better working conditions, a four-day week, blah, blah, blah. That's how you solve these things. So don't wait for MDLs, entrepreneurs. Get on with it. Really? Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to send a message to, to the Scottish Government and to John Swanee just to prove that we're here to help. <clears throat> I, I would suggest that um, the Scottish Construction Hub at Hamilton, which is run by Stephen Good, who's a really good guy, forward-thinking guy, and who, who's been trying to help, especially the construction industry over the past few years, I would implore them now to double down in finding ways about how we can help the construction industry. And I think that the you know that Stephen and the team there would have a big role to play. You know, like if we if we know there's a world sh- shortage on cement, what can we do? You no, know, don't as Tom says, just sit and say, Oh, we can't do anything, we can't, you know, we can't get you know, I said in the programme last week that because of the supply chain, you know, I, I'd put things in hold. You know, after sitting down with my team this week because it was the last thing I wanted to do, I've now taken the cellophane off again and we're going to get moving. But we do know there's going to be problems along uh, the way, but we're hoping by that time it will be resolved. But if 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 the Minister, if John Swinney is part of the COVID recovery and all about how do we recovery going, I think that the construction hub in Hampton's got a big, big role to play. And I, I think that, you know, we're about to help from everybody that's got my input that we could certainly help. Brilliant idea. You both talked about colleges and apprenticeships as the way forward. What about our schools? Are they currently creating the workforce of the future? Well, this is this is the age-old question. You know, are we educating our children for the world of work, or are we educating our our, our kids to pass exams? And um, so, I see lots of good stuff going on in schools. You know through our foundation where we are putting every head teacher in Scotland through a leadership academy where we're a thousand teachers through it until the pandemic hit and that's something that doesn't work over Zoom Willie because people need to get together so we're a, we're a thousand through three thousand to go and when you listen to the teachers and when you empower the teachers they they come up with some brilliant stuff and the link between um Business and schools is something I'm very keen on and I always encourage entrepreneurs to get into their local school. And it's 
it's it's not a one way process and every entrepreneur I've every I've ever encouraged to get into a school, first of all they're a wee bit worried over oh, well and then once they go, they said, I loved that and the kids loved it. And Wally's got some great stories about speaking in schools. I don't think we can tell them today, but <laughs> I remember one especially. <laughs> Want to share that, Willie? <laughs> what I will share is that myself and Tom, have, I won't say we're expert in this, but we've been involved over the past 10 years. We were on the Smith Group for about seven years. I was involved with Sir Ian Wood with his um, think tank. So we we know and we've got an understanding. We have been in the schools. Yes. We have been in the after-school training uh, you know, classes, what have you. And I think the answer is no, we haven't. We've failed. We've failed. And I think now is the perfect time uh, and I think from this crisis, I think there's loads of things where in Scotland we could make a big, big difference by doing things a bit different. We we have to connect. We've been saying this for we have to connect business with schools and colleges. So we're actually producing right the kids and the graduates that we need. You know, there's kids at the moment doing courses in origami. I'm just trying to think where I can fit them in. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there's 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 good work being done, Willie, and I I know I'd, I'd probably give ourselves a D minus on it, but um, Mark Logan, um, ex Sky Scanner, he's coming up with he's saying about getting kids coding, you know, the jobs of the future. I mean, there's a brilliant statistic, Donald, which I talk about every time I'm in a school. If you've got a child in primary school today, then sixty five percent of the jobs that your kids are going to be doing have not even been invented yet. And therefore, what the schools need to teach is problem solving and creativity. And just, you know, I obviously I want them to be entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, that's what we've got to get in because, and I always leave the schools with this thought, if 65% of the jobs have not been invented yet, why don't we invent them? Yeah, there is some good schemes out there. The Pathway Project with Ian Ritchie and the things that he's doing, if we can help, you know, everybody getting behind these things rather than, you know, everybody trying to do a disparate, you know, part, I think that um, we can certainly help. So big, big message in all of the last 10 minutes. John Swinney, we're here to help. Well, Tom, you mentioned problem-solving creativity. I'd like to take you back to the reason why they're raising NI, the NHS. Is it well enough run to spend those extra billions wisely and effectively? So the NHS is the third largest employer in the world behind the Chinese army and um, city facilities management. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've often thought um, trying to manage... I. I've got an aversion to managing big teams. I really believe in small, high-performance teams and I've kept my businesses that way. Therefore, to try and manage the NHS is an almost impossible task. And um, it's never just about the money. Because if, if it was just about throwing money at a problem, we would have solved it. It's not about that. And um, various people will come in and try and solve this, but... It's about the management of that. I don't know enough about the subject, but people who do know about it talk to me about trying to 
peel away the layers and make it more about the customer, which is music to my ears, because, you know, you've now got assistants to assistants, to managers, to managers, to KPIs. And, okay, how's that helping the customer that we're serving? And that's just a question. I'd, I'm not good enough to have the answer, Donald. Do you, Willie? I totally understand, uh, you know, economies of scale, central decision-making, uh, you know, central procurement, but the NHS is a monster that's out of control. And I definitely think that this goes against everything I, that I say in business, but I, I do think that it would be much, much better if it was broke up into smaller pieces. Yeah, there's there's too many decisions getting made at the top that is not right. It's a it's a you know a one one decision fits all, and that doesn't work. There is regional issues. There is things that need money in different parts. I think social care across the country. There's more need for it in parts. There's more in other parts where people can't afford that. So I really think that the problem with the NHS is we make central decisions. Uh, that that has different effects in the regions across the country. And for me, it is the one huge business that I believe would 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 actually it would benefit from being a bit more fragmented. Good to keep the controversy going. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> now in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of everyone's favourite. Walker's Shortbread. The Walker story begins in 1898 when the 21-year-old Joseph Walker opened the doors of his own bakery with a loan of £50 and a driving ambition to bake the world's finest shortbread. In his first year of business, Joseph used every spare moment to perfect his shortbread recipe. As word spread and demand for his quality shortbread increased, Joseph took the first steps to expanding his business by moving to a larger shop in the Speyside village of Aberlour, also investing in a horse and cart to deliver his baking further afield. During the 30s, the business, like Joseph's family, was expanding. Two of his sons, James and Joseph, joined the company, bringing plenty of fresh ideas to the table. Over the years, manufacturers began to cut corners by using margarine instead of butter. But Joseph believed that people still appreciated the care that went into making a superior product like Walker's shortbread. Even after Joseph Walker died in 1954, his sons committed to retaining that simple but successful recipe of just four ingredients. Flour, pure creamy butter, sugar and salt. As demand grew, so did the business. By 1961, all three of James's children, Joseph, Marjorie and James, had joined the workforce, making them the third generation of walkers to join the family farm. By the 1970s, Joseph's grandchildren had begun exporting walker shortbread to over 60 countries around the world, still maintaining their faultless loyalty to those four simple ingredients. To this day, Walker's continues to test all of its new products in Aberlour's village shop, describing it as the perfect way to ensure each cake and biscuit offers a real taste of Scotland. Walker's reputation has continued to grow as new customers the world over discover the quality of their baking. Industry experts have also been quick to recognise their success, with Walker picking up numerous international accolades, including five gold Mondial medals and the Food from Britain Innovation Award. Much has changed since Joseph Walker baked his first batch of biscuits over a century ago, but some things remain the same. Joseph's grandchildren and great-grandchildren have always remained true to Joseph's original idea to bake the world's finest shortbread. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Once again, we hear about butter, 
being that essential ingredient because we'd boiled Tunnock in in the first series and he talked about proper butter and shortbread. It's fantastic, isn't it, Tom? It's, it's amazing. And I, I actually think um, Walker's shortbread is Scotland's biggest food exporter, which is incredible when you think about it. And I, I say it every week. I love these stories. The enterprising up there in Speyside as well, you know, just coming out of the horse and cart, really, and then a, a global business. Again, another great Scott. Well done. I'm amazed in hearing the stories every week, and I've just been thinking as, as I've been sitting here, it's amazing how many of these fantastic entrepreneurs have all started off up north. Right, you know the people who live in Speyside, obviously we've got whiskey there, but shortbread and other things that we've heard. And so that's kind of new. I mean, we just think that all the, the dynamism comes from the west of Scotland, but obviously there's people back in you know the last century that thought, no, no, we're clever on the rest. But I think we walk our shortbread. It was the first thing for me when I started travelling the world the way back in the day that, you know, you go on a plane and you get Walker shortbread, you get into a hotel, you get Walker <laughs> shortbread. I'm in Abu Dhabi, I'm getting Walker shortbread. I thought, this this is everywhere, this is fantastic. So it was one of the, that probably, and Johnny Walker was the first two iconic Scottish brands that I actually did see, and obviously Lipton's Tea. Um, and Baxter's and, Jam. And Baxter's. Yeah. But they're all part of the community. I think they even test out the recipes in that, the wee, uh, wee shop in Aberlour. Isn't that fantastic, you know? So, well, I, so, well, I to take your your point, um, and we may come on to talk about it, but the new Global um, Entrepreneurship Monitor, which we do at the Hunter Centre at Strathclyde University, per, per head of population, we still get more people in Highlands and Islands starting their own business, probably out of necessity. Yes, yes. Um, so that is the richest bed of Scotland still. Yeah. We yes. think it's Glasgow, Edinburgh, whatever, yeah. but per head of population, it's still the Highlands and Islands. Yeah. And I love the way they find a product and they're just determined to convince the world, you know, that this is something you should buy. Like, they're, it's what, you know, they're selling seaweed, right? <laughs> so they just decided, we'll, you know, we'll make this vogue. So they're, as you say, you know, that um, necessity is the mother of invention and I think the people up north have really bought into that over the last couple of hundred years. Oh, it's now part of everyone's new year, isn't it? That gift as you come along with your whiskey and your shortbread. I had <laughs> friends over from Holland at the weekend and part of the Scottish pack going home was a can of Iron Brew, some shortbread. <laughs> it was the Iron Brew was my hangover cure. That was what I had <laughs> after New Year. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Heather Matthews, Managing Director of Little's Chauffeur Drive. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we are joined by Heather Matthews, Managing Director of Little's Chauffeur Drive. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
I think uh, the gentlemen are a bit disappointed that this this week we've no cakes. They said we've had a nice wee run, but it's lovely to see you anyway. <laughs> Sorry. The first important thing you need to know about Willie and I is we can be bought. Yes, That's the most indeed. important thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I wish I'd known that before I arrived. But you have got a fantastic family business and it's been an incredible success story. So tell us about the journey of the business and your own role within it. So... The company that I run and own is called Little Chauffeur Drive. Um, it was established in 1966 by my father and my uncle and started as three uh, cars that they bought from a man called George Little who was emigrating to Australia, <laughs> which is why it's called Little Littles. Um, and I joined the business in the early 90s, uh, went to university, did a psychology degree, like so many people did an arts degree, came out of uni, couldn't get a job, um, ended up going and doing a bit of work for my dad, um, helping him with some marketing. So at that point, the business was relatively small, but in the early 90s, the financial services sector was starting to take off, particularly in London, and we identified there was an opportunity for us there to uh, work with the City of London when they were coming up to do meetings in Edinburgh or Glasgow. So primarily we have a fleet of cars in Glasgow and Edinburgh, but we really uh, expanded and started to offer services elsewhere, first of all London and then Europe and then around the world. So about 60% of our business is Scotland, 40% overseas. Um, when I joined the business and I did that marketing role, it quickly grew. And then through the 2000s and into the last 10 years or so, we've just um, got bigger and bigger. And we were we were doing very, very well pre-pandemic, but then things have changed quite significantly in the last year. You've got lots of nice posh cars, but take me back to start 1966. Can you remember what those three cars were? <laughs> That's maybe a question from my dad. Oh, um, just... Humber Super Snipe, yeah, yeah. maybe, wow. just comes to mind. Blast from the past. We that. did. We had a lot of Daimler limousines when I was a when I was a kid. Actually, I do remember going to vintage car rallies in the back of a Rolls Royce. Wow. I remember being dropped off at primary school in a Daimler limousine. That's not a good thing <laughs> to, to be done to a small I child. Those Humbers. And thinking, my, that looks like a tank. Imagine if you had to push that. <laughs> <laughs> I think my dad wishes we'd kept some of the really old ones, actually, yeah. and still it had them. It was a few quid today, probably yeah. would be, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> so don't be modest. Tell us, when you joined the business as the new marketing head, what size the business was and what it is today? So car-wise, we probably had about 15 or 20 cars turning over about a million and pre-pandemic, we were up at over three and a half million and nearly 45 cars. Wow, fantastic. And you run the global business all from here? All from Glasgow, right, yeah. yeah. So we're headquartered in Glasgow, um, close to the radio station here, um, on the edge of Govan. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we run everything from our from our office in Paisley Road West. We have a garage in Edinburgh, so we have our, our own cars and chauffeurs through there. But the HQ is very much Glasgow-based. And, and tell me about family because um, I grew up in a family business and I know family businesses are really important in Scotland. Now, they have their ups and downs. <laughs> so what's your story and what's your wee kind of snippets for MD listening about family businesses and um, what happens within them? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I've been very, very fortunate because... When I joined the business, my mum and dad were in the business and there was there weren't that many other staff. So it was just us right. and a, a couple of other people in the office, one of whom still works for us, 
which is a trait of family businesses. People work for you for a long time and are very yeah. loyal, which is great. And I'd been in the business, so I joined the business in my early 20s. And in my early 30s, I started to realise that actually we needed to talk about succession. And succession is one of the big things that family businesses potentially stumble over if they don't go around about it in the correct way. A lot of family businesses fail at succession point because you have the older generation perhaps who are not ready to let go, the younger generation who are perhaps not ready to take over. So there needs to be a transition period which doesn't always happen properly. But we were very fortunate that we had external help. So we were part of something called the Centre for Family Enterprise, which took place, um, was run at Glasgow Cali University. Mm -hmm. And we actually did a family business course for two years to aid that succession. And therefore, it was was absolutely brilliant. It was so good. And a lot of the people that I know now in the family business community in Scotland, I met then or have met through other people that I met then because... Family business leaders in Scotland are absolutely vital. We are the backbone of the Scottish economy. We contribute an enormous amount of of money and GDP to the Scottish economy. And I really believe that in order for family businesses to succeed, you need to look look at succession. You need to look at the other factors that are specifically um, around how to run a business and a family. Because there sometimes can be a clash. That's interesting. I'm, you know, we've been about the scene for a long, long time and we never knew this. I'm obviously connected to GCU, so maybe we should find out a wee bit more and promote that a bit more for them. That sounds a really good idea. It's a very good thing, Willie, and it just it's it's about the age-old thing of entrepreneurs helping each other and this support mechanism yeah. of the peer-to-peer support and family businesses are so important in Scotland. Mm. The backbone, as you say, Um, So what's the best thing about the family business? What's the worst thing? I think the best thing about the family business is our staff. I think the fact that the staff have worked for Littles for a very long time. Our mechanic, Jim, um, has worked for us since 1969, I think. Something ridiculous like that. (laughs) Our reservations manager, Sharon, has been with us for over 30 years. They live and breathe little. They've seen all the changes that have happened. They've embraced it all. And that's a really, really good thing. Bad things, there are not that many bad things. But I think during the last year, it's been particularly difficult because I think with a family business, you're always thinking about, you're not thinking about the next quarter. You're thinking almost about the next generation. You're thinking about how can I keep this business going for a long time. It's a great point. To look after my staff, to be vocal in the local community, to be vocal in Scotland for family businesses and to take things forward. And during the pandemic, a lot of us were under threat. And that was difficult because as a leader, you have to try and be realistic, but also be positive and encourage your staff and hopefully you then get to the other side, which we did. You know, I I can talk about our experience through the pandemic and how difficult that was, but we survived. And I think a lot of that was was down to the fact that we've we've been around a long time. So maybe for the listeners, talk us just through what happened because things were going great and then, goodness, global pandemic, none of us saw it coming. No, no. So we didn't travel and travel's not been allowed for 18 months so that's been enormous huge for us um initially what happened was the cancellation started to come in first second week in march and that really ramped up very quickly we took 140,000 pounds worth of cancellations on in a day oh. and you start to think this is really scary 
And I spoke to my staff. I had to stand up in front of my staff about 10 days before lockdown to say, this is going to get really bad. And what I'd like to suggest, what I'd like you to agree to, is that we do a, a staff reduction in hours for reduction in salary. So I got all the staff to agree to work 60% of hours for 60% of salary, which at the time, a lot of them thought, Ooh, you know, that's quite a lot. They didn't realise it was going to get as bad as it did. Neither did I, to be honest, but that was my first step. And then closure came. Obviously, we had to close, you know, close the doors. Furlough arrived, which was brilliant for us. And then we had to go so, through... So furlough helped? Oh, massively. Yeah. Massively. Because... We couldn't do anything. Yeah, we couldn't. We couldn't provide cars and drivers. And it wasn't your fault. And it wasn't our no. And for so many people, that's been the case, hasn't it? So whatever business we had, um, the little that we had, uh, we did with the senior management teams. So myself, my ops operations director, and my general manager. Um, they drove, and I answered the phone. It was like going back in time <laughs> to when my dad started the business. Um, I mean, we looked at. A pivot, I'm not a fan of the word, but we looked at that, um, but thwarted at every turn because everything was travel related. So adaptation and innovation became my focus. How can I innovate? How can I adapt in order to survive? I reached out to a lot of other business leaders that I knew, some who I didn't, um, trying to expand my network even further, spoke to people who also were in you know, in, in the same sector in terms of driving, spoke to Adam Clark at uh, Arnold Clark, spoke to GW Philshill, you know, do you need drivers? Can I give you my guys? Just so I can continue uh-huh. to give them work. Um, but with the end of furlough looming uh, last October, I had to reduce my costs further. I had to do more redundancies. And then I pretty much put the business into a financial coma <laughs> over the winter because there was just no business there. And that was the only way that I could see that we would survive. And then the last five months, I've been carefully reawakening the business so can while I, can, keeping our costs down. Can I ask down. you, as, as a leader of the business, what helped you cope? Because, you know, sometimes there's not a lot of sympathy for the owners or the leaders of the business. Yeah. Um, but this shows about encouraging those entrepreneurs. So how did, how did you cope during that time? So... Personally, how I coped was I really focused on my own resilience. I did a lot of work around that. I've done a lot of online courses on thriving, on resilience. I did wild water swimming. I exercised a lot. (laughs) Um, I got a spin bike in one of my my bedrooms. I I just kept connected as much as I could. I'm also a member of an organisation called Vistage, which allows business leaders to come together once a month to discuss and share problems. And my Vistage group were amazing right. for me last I heard year. about that. What, what? So it's a worldwide organisation that, that is predominantly for CEOs and there are world-class speakers and you also, the main benefit I find is you have a group of business leaders who are almost like a non-executive board. And we do some issue processing, we help each other, we learn all about each other's businesses and we help in any way we can. And during the first lockdown, there were so many questions about furlough, how it's all going to work, all these things that we were lucky enough to have a really, really top, top class um, employment lawyer in our group. So he was great at helping us. So we're all offering each other advice. That really helped. That was invaluable for me. Yeah, that's a fantastic organisation which I had not heard of either. And this is a thing that we've been trying to promote, you know, for years and years and years. So um, it's interesting to find out, but I'm going to certainly find out more about Vistage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
great, great idea because Tom mentions it, you know, he mentioned it earlier as well, that being the CEO or the MD of a business is a lonely place. And I think if you've got quality, if you've got a quasi-board of non-execs from other businesses and you're all sharing, you know, the downside and the upside, that, that can only be good. You know, the education that you get from that, rather than sitting in a glass room back at the office, you know, not sleeping at night because mm -hmm. of the things you're having to do in your business, I think would probably help you get through it. It did, absolutely. Yeah. I think all the things that I did and all the people that I spoke to um, really helped because I think as a leader... Um, my staff were scared. We were all scared. Yeah, what yeah. was going to happen? Where were we going to go? You know, what what is our business going to look like on the other side of this? Will will we still be here? Um, and I think you need you need people you need as a leader to be making your staff feel that you're on top of it. And the only way you can be on top of it is if you reach out for help. Do Do you see green shoots now? As things begin to open up a bit. Um, yes, but only recently. Yes. Um, very recently. Yeah. Um, in the last probably three or four weeks, we've really seen a big increase in the number of inquiries and in the number of bookings. But there's still not that much going on in Scotland because corporate travel's still not really happening. Yeah. Business travel's not really allowed. I had a, a business meeting in London a couple of weeks ago and I was in Canary Wharf and it was very quiet. And it's spooky, isn't oof, it? It's yeah, spooky. Yeah. And I was up in one of the big buildings and, and it's empty. And you just think, how's that ever going to be full again? We're taking a short break, but we'll be back with more from our special guest, Heather Matthews, plus the board you can't afford, where you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business for business. Welcome back, as we're joined by Heather Matthews, Managing Director of Little Chauffeur Drive. Will COP26 be a great opportunity for you? Because you used to have some great contracts with the Commonwealth Games, um, G7 up at Glen Eagles. Do you think that will work out for us? I think COP's an enormous opportunity, not only for us, but for Glasgow, for Scotland, for the UK. I think COP will have its challenges, but I think for us as a business, um, we could recover in one fell swoop. Wow. I think we're very lucky to have this coming up in the next two months. What are those challenges, do you think? Uh, there's quite there's a lot of them. Is infrastructure in place to allow it to be a net zero conference? I, Will you be driving electric cars with all I, these dignitaries? I think there'll be an advance in the net zero agenda as a result of COP. I don't think the city is absolutely ready in terms of electric vehicles because of the infrastructure and the charging. I think that's the big problem. And I think for COP, there's an opportunity to have the world looking at Scotland. We can put on an incredible event, which we've done in the past. We can really reassure the world that we're open for business again. Um, but I think to actually have a net zero conference is going to be much more difficult than the politicians think. Yes. For us on the ground, you know, how do we actually have 100 cars that we can charge every night? Yeah. How do we do it? And do you have a plan for a changeover as a transition to have you have a, a time scale of when you would be all electric? Uh, that's had to move. <laughs> but yes, yes, we, we intended to be fully fully electric by 2025. But I am at the moment uh, a little behind on that because of because of what's happened. Understandable. But I'm also looking again at other technologies and, and I think hybrid, I've got a lot of hybrids at the moment and I'm, I'm keen to keep that hybrid mix because 
It's not just the infrastructure perhaps in Glasgow that's not quite there yet. It's not there in the whole of Scotland. So if I'm going on an extended trip or taking a CEO around visiting family businesses all over Scotland or whatever it is, if they can't charge the car, what's going to happen? So I think until the infrastructure here is as good as it is in central London, then it's going to be a while longer before we can all go down that road. More difficult. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about support that you got from Vistage, but you also provide support, and I believe you're doing a family business road trip. Um, tell us a wee bit about that. I'm it's later in the month. <laughs> yes. So um, I'm involved in uh, and sponsoring, actually co-sponsoring, a 10-day trip around Scotland, and we're visiting family firms in a variety of sectors, driving across Scotland in two cars, um, one from Arnold Clark and one from us, from Littles with a Chauffeur. We're meeting families and business, going to factory tours, going behind the scenes um, and really getting insights into family business heritage and history, the challenges they've faced over the last year and their plans for the future. And the, the reason for the road trip really is to celebrate the importance of family firms to the Scottish economy because they contribute so much Scotland's top 100 family firms generate 22 billion in turnover per year and more than 1.4 billion in profits. The oldest family firm in Scotland dates from 1715, a company called John White and Sons. And they employ over 50% of private sector employees, which is almost a million people across Scotland. So we are family firms that are going to be involved in the trip and part of the itinerary are, I mentioned, you mentioned Walker Shortbread earlier, we're going there. So Kinlock Anderson, Rufflet's Hotel, Creef Hydro, Walker Shortbread, Graham's, The Family Dairy, Gordon McPhail, Johnson's of Elgin, lots and lots of really interesting, interesting people So I, I mentioned this in the programme before, Heather, that um, I was very proud when I was told officially that we we're the largest um, private employer in Scotland and we're a family business. Well, so, yeah, and you should was, be proud. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. Yeah, that was a, a big one for yeah. me. I don't yeah. think enough's made of the family business importance in Scotland, um, but you're putting it up there this morning, Heather, so well done. Thank you. Thank Are you. there any key characteristics amongst those that lead family businesses You know, that make them special? Absolutely. <laughs> well, obviously, obviously you're done. <laughs> I think long-term strategy is key. I think family businesses always look much further ahead than businesses that are run by shareholders who are looking perhaps to get an investment out of that out of that business. Patient capital in the business is a big thing, and patient capital certainly is something that yes. gave us a cushion when many others might not have had it. Having the wise counsel of the older generation, I certainly relied on my father quite a lot in the last year. And then I mentioned before having loyal staff who are personally invested in the company. All these things together means family businesses thrive. But as you've said, Tom, there's there's a lot more can be done. What about the downsides? What's the most difficult thing about being part of a family business? I think for, for me, I am very lucky, but I think for very, very large family businesses that are multi-generational, there needs to be lots more structure around their governance and they have family offices and all manner of ways to actually govern the business because they then have cousins that are in the business that are running it and people who are out the business but are still shareholders and my goodness, it can get messy. (laughs) (laughs) We, We talked earlier about succession. So 
do you have a succession planned? Is there any next generation ready to come in or anything? My son is too young for yeah. that yet. He's still of an age where he, he thinks he'll run the business or he'll go off and be a lawyer or, I mean, he, he he's only 12. So no, <laughs> is, the, no is the short answer. But if I want, think... <laughs> if you want to know about succession, there's a great programme in Sky with Brian Cox called Succession. Oh, yeah. Loosely based on the Murdoch family. And that's how not allegedly, to do it. Yeah. allegedly, yeah, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. watched it. The Go Radio lawyers are, are jumping <laughs> yep. in here. Yeah. yeah, but a great watch nonetheless. Yeah, and it, it features some uh, parts yeah. of Scotland as well too. Dundee yeah. and Glasgow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm quite fortunate. I only have one son also, but he's he's now a lot older than twelve. But he lives in Geneva, so I know for a fact he's definitely not coming into the business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, what piece of advice? One piece of advice would you give your son when he's old enough? to to maybe run the business from what you've learned? I think I think for me it would be around probably going and getting other experience first, getting to know other things, doing other things before you start. I, I worked in a pub when I was in my early 20s and I'm a big believer that working in a pub really teaches you how to interact with people and all about customer service and hard work. I think it's really important that people come into a family business ready to work hard and ready to look after their customers. Yeah, what have been the key characteristics and traits that have made you, Heather, so successful? I'm very determined. <laughs> so <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Yeah. And I, I think, think you'd you ha- be a good leader through a pandemic. I think Certainly you comes have across. to be. I think you have to be. And I think if you're driven and determined, you can do anything. And if you're if you're happy to ask other people for help, then that also um, is is key. You can't be driven and think you know all. You need to ask for help, and that's that's two things that I think I, I do quite well. No, well, I, I think it's, it's a brilliant story, and I'd like to thank Littles because when I got my first ban from driving for speeding, Little stepped in and helped me, Donald. <laughs> that was my first ban. <laughs> so thank you. I do recall that, but I wouldn't have mentioned it. <laughs> so you just want to get the police to be following him now there's a bit of business there, here, a wee bit of marketing. They seem to always be my case, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I've been fortunate. I don't touch wood that I've not needed that because as of yet, I've not been banned. But... Uh, is there is there anything that you can use this platform today? How can we help you promote your business? Um, I think just the opportunity to be here and talk about it's been really, really interesting and really good. Mm. I think for me, um, one of the things that I looked at, I mentioned Pivot and I didn't want to go down that road, but I did look at opportunity and I, I kept an eye on, on things and what else we could be doing. So we are also going to be looking, we, we've, I bought an e-commerce business while while things were quiet as well. Right. So um, that sells gift vouchers on behalf of five-star hotels. And so it's aligned to the core business. And that's been ticking over for three months now. And we'll really tr- try and grow that beyond beyond the end of the year. Great. And I'm also looking at launching a new brand, which is going to be aimed at small group travel for private individuals, more of a, a B2C casual offering. Um, so we will come out of this with, with three propositions. And that, I think, will give us... Um, a benefit in the future as well because I think with a pandemic you have to look and see what what do you do and how can you make yourself certainly not future proof but how can you make yourself less likely to feel in the future so I suppose from my point of view looking at it long term I've, I've diversified a little bit um, and I'm excited about the future mm-hmm. again. One of the things I think that we definitely want to go out today this is not you saying this is me saying this is that uh, Exe- executive travel, the hire of cars, 
is not as expensive as people would think it might be. It's I've not. I've just a, actually found this out over the last few it's months. It's not. It's I'm, not. I'm and it's, it's used by so many people as a way of actually lowering their costs because they're not jumping in and out of taxis. They are um, able to use the car as an office on the road. Uh, a lot of our clients use our cars, you know, a great deal of the time. And they're, they're going out to, to potentially do a multi-million pound deal. They can't be late. Yeah. Um, and it's also, it's a huge thing for Scotland. Scotland's massive in terms of the events that we put on. And if you have world-class speakers coming in to an event, you don't want them to try and get a taxi. You put them in a show for a different car. So it's one of those businesses and industries that a lot of people don't know about, but actually it's it's working away in the background and, and making sure that a lot of the things that Scotland's really good at, we, we, um, we help with. Fantastic. You also do chauffeur-driven tours of Scotland to holidays. That's a, a dream job for me when I retire from the Herald. I have to say, I just love Scotland and the views. And I was looking at the website and the, uh, your drivers just talking about some of the stunning scenery. But that sounds like great. People always think it's just going from business events or, you know, but it's actually touring Scotland. Tell us a bit more about that. So the leisure side of the business was hugely, hugely successful just before um, the pandemic, we really had seen a big a growth in leisure, and the people that we look after would be individuals, um, mainly coming from overseas. So US and Canada is a big market for us. Uh, a lot of people chasing their ancestors, a lot of Americans coming over because they think that they're related to Walker Shortbread or whatever it is. You know, they they have they have some connection. Uh, we work with a lot of. Um, tour operators and travel agents and how how it works is that the the person or tour operator will get in touch with us maybe with a wish list so people say I really want to see a castle I want to do this and we will then build an itinerary for them and we will allocate a chauffeur to it and he then does a whole lot of work in the background for them and they go out on the road for three days, six days, whatever it is. We can also organise hotels for them. Generally, they'll be staying in four or five star hotels. And they have this incredible experience that is a holiday, but something they will always remember. And people who do a sightseeing tour in a chauffeur-driven car um, just have the absolute best time because they don't need to worry about getting from A to B. They don't need to worry about driving on the wrong side of the road. Um, they don't need to worry about having a glass of wine at lunchtime. All these things that just make it easier and make it more enjoyable. Tell us a bit about the fleet. What do you have? Some cars, minibuses, vianos, big coaches. What do you have? Most most of them, yeah. So so we have um, Mercedes E-Classes, so we've got hybrids, plug-in hybrids. We've got Lexus hybrids and um, we've got some Jaguars as well, some Jaguar XJs, some Mercedes S-Classes. And then we've got a whole lot of E-Classes. So V-Classes are the, 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 the equivalent of the Viano, I suppose, um, which can take six or seven people. And they're great for larger groups, golfers, um, family groups, anytime you want to travel in, in a... In a in, in more than, than a couple. Um, but we can also organise coaches and all sorts of other things because we're very, very well connected across the whole of Scotland. Fantastic. So you've had a lot of success. What are you most proud of? Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a really hard one because there's been lots of things. I've been so fortunate over the last few years. Um, we won a lot of awards in 2019 and I was never really one for awards. I didn't ever really understand what an award was for, but I think the key thing, one of the things that happened actually, Sir Tom, was, was I got a letter um, from you in 2015, I think, uh, when the Scottish um, Business, Business Awards, Awards first started. Right. 
and I was nominated for Female Business Leader of the Year. And I was blown away by that. <laughs> but actually, the reason that awards are so good is because it gets your name out there. And I think it made me realise that I had to be the face of Littles. And if I was the face of Littles and talking about Littles, then Littles as a company would be more successful. Yeah. So so I think that side of things, I'm very proud of the fact that over the last five years, we have managed to win a whole lot of awards. And, and probably the best one was UK Chauffeur Company of the Year that we won in 2019. So I think if we have you back here in 10 years, I think you'll reflect and you'll say probably steering the business through COVID was the greatest achievement. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when somebody turns off the spigot, Yep. Yeah, and just said you've got to close and it's no fault of your own mm-hmm. I can only imagine what that's like and so well done I think yeah, the big achievement is keeping going yeah, yeah. thank you thank well, you fun section to end with I'm afraid Heather okay. we're, uh, I've got ten quick fire questions for you so let's see you kicking off how would your family and friends describe you? Um, I am a good friend a good listener and a good host I really want to Get loads of people in my house and do dinner parties again. We've not been able to do that for a while. So, Your best and worst traits? Uh, my best trait is I get things done. I'm very driven and focused and organised. My worst trait is that I often take too much on because people know that I can get things done. So, And then I get frustrated and I can't get through it all. What's the best book you've ever read and what are you currently reading? The best book in the last year that I've read is a book called Hamnet by Margaret Atwood, which is all about Shakespeare. And Shakespeare's family, very, very good. I'm not reading anything at the moment. I read four books on it when I was on holiday in July, so I'm taking a break. What music are you listening to and what's uh, your favourite band? Uh, I've been listening to the new Billie Eilish album the last couple of weeks. I really, really like female so- singer-songwriters like her or Lana Del Rey or Taylor Swift. But I also really love dance music. I'm a child of the 90s, so... Um, <laughs> yeah, raver. I have been known, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> The best place in Scotland you've visited and why? Uh, Sutherland. absolutely love Sutherland. From Ullapool to Lochinver, the mountains around there, the landscape up there is like nothing else in the whole of Scotland. It's so quiet. I love it. And if you were in power and could change one thing, what would it be? I would do away with political parties. Hey! Because <laughs> the damage they do... You because all with that, Willie? 100%. Because <laughs> all politicians do is just oppose what the other one says, so nothing ever changes. Yes. Great. Dictatorships are the Dictatorships are the way That's forward. <laughs> what countries have you enjo- most enjoyed travelling to, whether for business or leisure, and why? So I'm really lucky. I, uh, I've driven pretty much the length of Europe a number of times. I've driven as far th- south as Puglia and as far east as Denmark. Um, but I love Portugal and Italy the most in Europe. Um, on business, I was in China with Visit Scotland in late 2019. I absolutely loved it. I felt so lucky to have been able to see Shanghai and Beijing and I travelled on a bullet train between the two. Easy one for you. Do you pay cash or credit card? Apple Pay, actually, oh, in the last year. Me. I just don't use I don't use cash anymore. I don't even carry around my purse anymore. I just do everything through my phone. Well, what's been your best and worst investment? Uh, best would be houses, which I've bought and sold over the years. I think that's that's always worked out well for me. Um, stocks and shares. I've never ever had any success with that. <laughs> and finally, what does your perfect day look like? 
So I would wake really early as the sun rises. When no one else was around, I would have a cup of tea outside in the sunshine. I would take a spin class or go on a big cycle. I would have a delicious brunch with a friend, a walk on the beach, an afternoon nap, and a meal in a lovely restaurant with friends, all ideally in Portugal. Uh, and of course, you'd be listening to the Go Business radio of show. Of course. Obviously. 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 But thank you, Heather. After the break is the board you can't afford, where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. We're going to our phone lines now, and first up is a young entrepreneur, Lewis Kennedy of Talonmore Drinks Company. Welcome to the boardroom, Lewis. Hi there, thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself and your business. So my name's Lewis Kennedy, I'm the founder of Talonmore Drinks Company. And we're a non-alcoholic drinks company creating beverages from rooted and plant-based ingredients to replicate spirit-strength drinks. Great, it sounds fascinating. How long have you had this business? So, well, we started quite a while ago. We started in May of 2020, but we just released our first product on the 1st of June this year. So it's all been it's quite a long development process, but we're very excited to finally start it. Hi, Lewis. It's Willie here. How are you? Hi there. I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you doing? So let me ask you... What made you go down this route? Why did you think this was a, an enterprise you'd like to get involved in? Well, I graduated from product design uh, at the University of Dundee and I was doing a lot of packaging design for whiskey brands, which is, uh, well, Scottish whiskey brands that I found myself uh, very proud to be Scottish and um, working for the premium Scottish kind of consumer goods market. And just doing a bit of research in the uh, industry, finding non-alcoholic spirits in the growing market that they are was a really interesting market to, to get involved with, especially as it's so young. And with the brewing and production methods that we kind of thought about, we realized that we could actually make quite a difference in terms of flavor and target positioning. So what's your question for Tom and Willie then? So my question is regarding product development and timing. So as a new company, do you think it's best to build our Talonmore brand with just our flagship non-alcoholic spirit or is it better to develop a range of products to meet a wider market? Oh, who wants to come in on that one? That sounds pretty tough. I can see their faces thinking that's a challenge. Tom? So, hi Lewis. It's a very intriguing business. Um, so, listen, I don't think we're going to come up with a perfect answer here, but all I can say to you is learn by doing. And you should be experimenting at this stage and um, listening to your customers, getting the feedback, changing your marketing that little bit. So just get out there, launch what you've got ready, speak to your customers, really listen to what they're telling you and then alter your strategy accordingly. Um, and that trial and error is something which every business goes through and it's and it's no failure if if something doesn't work. That's just another learning for you, and that's just another step closer to your success. Is what I would say. Yeah, and what I would say, Lewis, is is that the great thing about this is that you're creating a market. You're not trying to break into a market. I mean, people would say it's a it's a bit of an oxymoron to say a you know a non-alcoholic spirits trade. 
But uh, I think that you could be a trailblazer and you could actually be able, the, the person who actually created this whole market, you know, I don't know how much research you've done as you know, to people, you know, being interested in this, but I think it would be intriguing to, to find out how you got on and how you actually market it. I would just say to you that with it being such a new young market that I personally would stick to try to create one brand and then from that, then you could build into to other products. That'd be my own personal opinion. But I'd have to say, uh, I'm saying that as a consumer, I'm not an expert in, in, in variety branding. What do you see as your key audience then, Lewis, for your product? And what's what's your vision of the company, say, five years from now? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I completely appreciate those comments as well. I think there's no right answer to, to how we start this process and how we continue. Um, we Our target market currently is really interesting. About a third of under 30-year-olds don't drink alcohol anymore, which is a massive Ooh, audience really? and continues to grow as as uh, more people turn 18. We think that Talon Moore can actually be a bit of a brand that um, appeals to both non-drinkers and drinkers for people who want to take a night off or have got uh, a big meeting in the morning, but they want to have a relaxing, enjoyable drink, say, on a Wednesday evening. Um, in five years, I see us going more internationally. There's lots of communities of people who just don't drink alcohol for many reasons, including religious reasons, and that would then continue through to uh, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, for that large community of people that enjoy drinking and uh, foods, you know, that enjoy high quality food, but can't drink alcohol. So I see us really going a, a lot more international to, to try and appeal to a lot more communities. That, that sounds like a good plan, Lewis. And that, that was an interesting stat you've just gave us there about under 30s and, and non-alcoholic uh, consumption. So I think that uh, this this will be interesting to see you know how you, how the product goes, and obviously you've touched on something here with the no religious bias um, rewards uh, towards sorry not drinking. So it'd be great. I mean that's obviously a huge market if you can break in in the Middle East and Asia. So uh, good good luck with that. I think you're you're really onto something here. Um, a friend of mine is launching a non-alcoholic champagne, which to start with I thought this is madness, but he said about the Middle East as well, Lewis. And, uh, um, I mean, that stat you've just said is, um, yeah, brilliant. So best of luck to you. I think you're really on to something. And keep in touch with the show and come and tell us about your future successes. Yeah, all the very best. Yeah, we'll certainly raise a glass. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Tom, I understand you were there. Yeah, um, amazingly so. Um, I was over looking at business opportunities in New York and we had arrived on the Monday, um, September the 10th, and um, we were meeting for breakfast in uh, Midtown with a breakfast meeting and then we were going to go over to New Jersey for, for another meeting about new retail formats because... At that time, we used to go over and look at things, then bring them back to the UK. And um, we're having breakfast in, I'll never forget it, the Parker Meridian Midtown. And I had forgotten a belt from my trousers. And I said to, to, to the guys, we're meeting with Ernst and Young. And um, I said, I'm just going to pop out, get a belt from my trousers, I'll, I'll be back. And I went out and it was, you know, 
9am New York time. It was a beautiful blue sky day. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, Willie. It was one of those crisp New York mornings. But there was something wrong. The cars had stopped. There was all the yellow cabs sitting. And I actually said to a cabbie who was sitting with his door open, I said, is there something wrong? And he said, listen. And the radio was on, but I couldn't I couldn't get what was wrong. And I, I, I just went straight back and, and I said to the guys there, I said, listen, there's something wrong happened to you. And then the phones began to go. And the head of EY in Manhattan said, right, Come, come with me. I managed to get a phone call off to Mary and to say, "Look, I'm all right." Um, and then the mobile phones all got cut off because they, they didn't know what was happening. So they didn't want any terrorists communicating, so they cut off all the phones. So we we watched nine eleven kind of take place on the TV screen, but in Midtown Manhattan, and um, they then sealed off. Manhattan so we couldn't get you couldn't get on on or off and I wasn't actually scared until we went out for a an Italian that night and um, normally you know what New York's like it's busy and everything's happening and the only traffic was emergency services the only noise was the wailing of the sirens and we went into this Italian restaurant and normally it's buzzy and everybody's chatting and, th and there wasn't a word spoken. It was the most eerie thing. Um, we had a quick bowl of pasta then back to the hotel. So and in, in, the, in the hotel room watching it unfold, the only time I got scared was when there was rumours going about that George W was going to nuke somebody and they were going to nuke somebody back and I thought, well, they're going to nuke Manhattan because that's... that's where this is and we're stuck here but of course it didn't happen and we we were supposed to meet um, a couple of um, very big New York business people who had a format Bed bed Bath and Beyond it was called and in the afternoon they actually asked us so this is the afternoon of 9-11 on the Tuesday they asked, asked us to come to their Park Avenue apartment to have the meeting so what was I doing in 9-11? I was having a business meet in Manhattan, believe it or not. I mean, it was Jeez. it was surreal. But anyway, trying to get out of New York, we were allowed off of Manhattan the next day and we went over to New Jersey where we could actually see where the Twin Towers had been. We were looking over the Hudson and um, I managed to get us um, a private aircraft the bit I'm missing out actually was we were meeting with other Scottish entrepreneurs, Richard Emanuel, Paul Slater, were all coming across and Richard Emanuel had booked Windows on the World for dinner on the Tuesday night of 9-11 and that's at the top of the World Trade Centre. Wow. wow. So I was due to have dinner there. Wow. So someone was looking after me at that point. And anyway, trying to get out, we managed to get a private plane and we went over to Teterborough Airfield and there was a few falls because it was all still, the airspace had been closed down, nothing was moving and the captain would come in and say, right, are you ready? And I said, of course, aye. And then, no, no, it's closed down again. So that, this happened about three times and then we finally got up in the air and it was such a relief. 
And then the captain called me up to the flight deck and he said, see that aircraft there? That left Titabra just before us. They were the first to be allowed out of American airspace and we were the second. And I went, right. And he said, do you know who's on that aircraft? And I said, no. He said, that's the Bin Laden family. Because the Bin Laden family were very wealthy Saudi construction who had business interests in America. Obviously, Osama Bin Laden was the black sheep of the family. But they, that that plane, and we trailed it because we couldn't fly directly into Presswick. They wouldn't allow us. So we had to fly to Shannon in Ireland. And that aircraft landed in Shannon as well. I never saw anybody. But they went on to Saudi Arabia and we switched aircraft and went on to Presswick. So that's my 9-11. Somebody taking care of you. Yeah, you're certainly well blessed escaping that. A terrible, terrible tragedy. More positive note, coming up you've got Kilt Walk, um, that great venture you back. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, for the first time in a wee while we'll be able to walk together. Um, numbers are limited, we're, um, so if you want to take part and raise money for a charity you care about, get a wee bit of tartan, get registered um, and the Hunter Foundation will top up whatever you raise by 50%. Um, and the other brilliant thing, we've got brilliant sponsors, we've got Royal Bank of Scotland help us, Arnold Clark, just by registering two people are going to win brand new cars, Willie. Amazing. I mean, amazing. Big Eddie at Arnold wow. Clark, just amazing. And um, since the beginning, Donald, since we've taken it over, there's been over £27 million raised for over 2,100 different Scottish charities. I'm very proud of the Kilt Walk team. So get your tartan on. Oh, it's phenomenal what you've done with Kilt Walk. I remember it from the very early days. Uh, it's It keeps growing and a great venture to take part in. And as you say, it's helping your charity of your choice. So you be walking, Willie? Uh, if my feet hold up, yeah, I'll certainly be attempting just the the uh, the short donner, I think it's called, the five mile maybe. <laughs> Someone's talking to me about it yesterday. Yep. But no, the Kilt Walk has been an amazing success. It's, it's probably one of the most high profile charities where people can get involved. Um, so I would encourage anybody and everybody, I think there's only a few slots left. So if you want to get your kilt on or whatever, or get your shell suit on, I think Tom will be more happy with that. And uh, I did walk it once with an Elvis suit on, so I, I won't be wearing that. I don't think it'll fit me now. But uh, no, really? fantastic. I've got the yes. photos, Donald. Yes, I've got photos. the photos. I yeah, think we I need to post yeah. that up yeah. on uh, Go Radio yeah. social media. I was yes. the only person out of 14,000 that thought it was fancy dress walk. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of email questions from uh, listeners. Neil Cleland is asking, what advice would you offer businesses financing or looking to scale, Tom? Oh, goodness, that's a broad question, but um, it depends what sector you're in, but there's a couple of things which are just, they're universal for whatever business you're in. Really understand your customer and your customer's needs. Really understand, look at the downside. The upside always takes care of itself, Willie, as we all know. So look at what you're risking to scale up your business. Make make sure you've got a team that can do it and then give it a go. Give it a go. Willie, what's your advice? My advice would be, first and foremost, is that make sure that the money that you believe that you require to scale up 
is definitely necessary. Right? If there's a way of growing your business without having to borrow or whatever, then look at every avenue. And I can say that because, you know, I've been quite good at that over the years. Uh, and then when you do realise that your return on investment could be great and you think that you're convinced about your idea about scaling up, then you know, the usual place, first place to go, you know, sort of family and friends, uh, and then bank. And if unsuccessful, then you have to look at VCs and, and people taking stakes in your business. But I would just say, but be, be absolutely certain that it's the right time to scale up and to make sure that definitely that it's worth your while. Don't take a risk by going out and spending, you know, six-figure sums on the one that you think you might be right. Make sure that you're certain. He also asks or says you are both instigators in eSpark, the entrepreneurial training and resource. What should such incubators now be offering post-pandemic? It's, 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 the, same, it's the same stuff, um, Donald. It's the business basics. Um, we we still operate our accelerator down in Dundonald, which is free to anybody who's got an idea of starting a business or who wants to scale their business. They can come in, they can learn from others. Really important, this peer-to-peer -peer learning. You'll hear me talking about it all the time. The peer-to-peer -peer support, the peer-to-peer -peer learning. But the number one thing that we teach there is cash flow. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Yeah, certainly been a message you've you put across on a number of shows. Willie? Yeah, same again. We'd probably be doing the same things. But I think the greatest success of eSpark was being that collective, getting them all in one room. To get 70 startup businesses or 80 startup businesses in a room, all feeding off of each other, all helping each other, all learning, sometimes getting together and creating a different business. These guys are good at marketing, this guy's good at product presentation, so well, wait a minute, here's your weakness, here's your strength. I think the, the success of the entrepreneurial exchange, of uh, eSpark and the Edge, I think all of these things, I, I, you know, Tom mentioned earlier, we've still getting a, a D- minus for all the things we tried to do with the, the NEAT group and the, you know, the, the Smith group. I think the one thing where we can be very, very proud, and I'm talking about everyone who's involved, I think, and, and Tom's got to take a lot of credit, the, 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 the forward-thinking people that have got involved in taking Scotland from the bottom quartile of startups to the top quartile, I think we can definitely say that this has been a major success. And I, there's not much I would change about what we've got in the system at the moment, apart from that connectivity. So are there any businesses that you can highlight that have been a phenomenal success as a, thanks to eSpark and The Edge? I don't think it would be right to single out any business. I think Tom's mentioned the figures before. You know, hundreds of people uh, now employed, millions, hundreds of millions in turnover. Some of the businesses have been bought and sold. I think there's too many good success stories to to, to dig out one. There's a few funny ones, but but I, I think the that, funny ones then. Well, I think I, I may have mentioned it before, but this was true when. I come down my uh, into the, the, the atrium in my office and there was a plumber <laughs> and he, he says that he was there to try and get his proceeds of crime money back <laughs> that the police had took off him, you know, so I believe he's now got a flourishing central heating business, <laughs> right? But uh, no, that's certainly, and some of the things, you know, some of the things that didn't work, you know, the, the guy that had come up with the flagpole for the golfing range, you know, <laughs> 
What was that? Tell us a bit more. Come on. This gentleman, uh, mature gentleman, uh, stopped me uh, in the office one day and he said he was in East Park. And I said, well, that's great what you try to do. He says, I've come up with this invention. You know, and it was... Uh, and I, I, I won't dwell on it because you'll know, but anyway, uh, I just thought to myself, well, this will be tough. This will be tough to make it. So that, that, that was one product that kind of took me aback and I just wondered you know, uh, how this was going to be successful. He's probably going to phone in next week and say, I've just sold out to Eurogolf for 100 million or something. <laughs> one, Let's hope so. The one business that kind of sticks with me coming out through Edge is TV Squared. Um, and TV Squared, founded by Callum Smeaton and um, Kevin Doran, serial entrepreneurs in Scotland, who I've backed way back in 1999. And... Um, Callum come up with a new way to measure TV advertising. So it's great Scottish ingenuity and engineering, but now a global business. And Callum said in the early days, the edge money came without any strings attached. So he actually took the money and bought a, a round-the-world ticket and he went to each country and looked at what they were doing and he said there was no other place really you would have got money to to do that whereas the edge just said we're backing you as the entrepreneur you decide how you're going to spend it and I'm very proud to say we're the biggest shareholder in TV Squared now that's brilliant unfortunately that's all we have time for but hopefully you've enjoyed our new extended show if you have any feedback for us or want to know more about how you can get involved visit thisisgo.co.uk don't forget you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.